the word ekphrasis comes from the Greek for the description of the work of art produced as a rhetorical exercise. It is a vivid, often dramatic, verbal description of a visual art piece. Hey there, everybody. Thanks for joining me today. This is Darwin Mesadu. Welcome to The Ekphrastic, a podcast where we paint pictures with words. Today's subject, Frank Bolin, an artist known for his lush, semi-abstract works that consider histories of colonialism in poetic ways, now known as actually Sir Franklin Bolin. Don't forget the sir. His work has redefined the course of abstract painting. Uh, we'll get to know him a little bit better. But first, let's get into some news from the art world. First piece we're going to read here comes uh, out of Al Jazeera. It's been written up a couple different places, but uh, reading today from Al Jazeera. NFT self-portrait by Sophia the Robot sells for nearly $700,000. And it starts off with a quote, I'm so excited about people's response to new technologies like robotics. Sophia told uh, Reuters um, news agencies. So yeah, the robot itself has its own uh, hot tape. They begin here. Uh, a digital artwork by humanoid robot Sophia was sold at auction on Thursday for 688K in the form of a non-fungible token, NFT. The latest sign of a frenzy in, an, in the NFT art world. NFTs... Digital signatures saved on blockchain ledgers that allow anyone to verify the ownership and authenticity of items have become the latest in investment craze with one artwork selling this month for nearly 70 mil. Oh, let me click this real quick. What was that? What was that? So for 70 mil. Oh, I think I spoke about this briefly last time. It was a Beeple, uh, uh, Beeple art, art piece, um, digital art. Yeah, I spoke about this last time. It's it was called First Five Thousand Days, and it's just a collage, basically, of uh, um, random pictures uh, that signified each day during the um, the last few years. But let's continue with Sophia here. So Sophia, who was unveiled in 2016, produced her art in collaboration with 31-year-old Italian digital artist uh, Andrea Bonac Bonacetto. Andrea Bonacetto, known for colorful portraits, known, uh, some of which de depict famous people such as Tesla's uh, CEO, Elon Musk. So the robot has combined elements from Bonacetto's works, art history, and her own physical drawings or paintings on various surfaces uh, multiple times in a process her creator David Hansen describes as interactive loops of evolution. So this one was entitled Sophia Instantiation. The digital work is a 12-second MP4 file showing the evolution of Bonacetto's portrait into Sophia's digital painting and is accompanied by a physical artwork painted by Sophia on a printout of her self-portrait. This, this NFT stuff is, is wow. So uh, um, they're going to say, I'm so excited about people's response to new technologies like robotics. And I'm so glad to be part of these uh, creatives. Uh, again, this was uh, Sophia, who was wearing a silver-colored dress, told uh, how do you say Reuters? Reuters news agency? Reuters. I think I've heard it pronounced Reuters. 
news agency died. The identity of the buyer was not immediately known. Hong Kong-based Hansen of Hansen Robotics said he was surprised at the pace of the bidding. I was kind of astonished to see how fast it shot up uh, as, the, as the bidding war took place at the end of the auction. So it was really exhilarating and stunning, he said. Art collector and blockchain investor Jihan Chu believes there's a lot of money waiting to be invested in digital goods. And while the digital art sector is looking frothy right now, he sees huge potential. What we're seeing right now looks like a bit of a bubble, uh, you think? Especially in the NFT art world. So let's let's look a little bit into this NFT thing because I, I think it's a bubble too. I've been hearing everything being turned into NFTs and a lot of people talking about it. And I have something to say. So I'll just use this next one to for as a jumping off platform. So in the in in Bloomberg um, business section here, they have an article: Rich millennials are splashing millions on crypto art. The pandemic hit the art world hard, but an influx of young tech-savvy collectors uh, have kept the uh, market buzzing. At the end of January, an impeccably pre uh, preserved painting by Italian Renaissance artist Sandro Botticelli sold for a record $92 million. Six weeks later, a work that could not be further from the old master, a digital compilation of images by an artist who goes by the name of Beeple, so for 70 mil, uh, back to people here. Uh, the two pieces are worlds apart, but their desirability is driven by similar factors. Although the art market suffered from pandemic closures, it's been saved by an undiminished appetite amongst uh, wealthy collectors for prestige investments, as well as an influx of younger tech savvy buyers whom galleries and dealers have managed to reach online. Even when art fairs and in-person auctions resume, the industry won't forget its digital transformation. Last week's blockbuster sale of Everydays, the first 5,000 days, by Mike Winkleman, a.k.a. Beeple, suggests as much. So here's my take. NFTs, so for those who don't know, let me give a very rudimentary explanation of an NFT. Anything that has a digital footprint can be an NFT. It can be a, an electronic version of some artwork that was created. Maybe electronic was never actually printed. Or it could be a rendition of something that was printed and now has a, an electronic uh, a signature for or a signature uh, recreation. We're talking about, and again, I say anything. So this concludes. It could be a meme, it could be a, a GIF, uh, it could be a, um, a a YouTube video, a snippet of a YouTube video. It could be a highlight from Sports Center. It could be like anything can become an NFT. So how do they? How do? What, what creates value for it? How does it? You transform something like. Um, a, a cat falling off a counter and making that into an NFT. So you, you know, there's companies that, that do this translation for you, but basically they turn it into code. You have a specific code for that image or that, you know, that video, whatever it is you're trying to, um, you're going to, you're going to make the, um, 
the token out of. So you know, there's a bunch of ones and zeros, and it's and it's, it's and it's significant to that specific piece. That specific signature is really what you are investing in, or buying, or um, creating if you're the person offering this. So you will have exclusive rights to that specific line of code. Now, what does that mean? So I'm I'm looking here at the a, a, a drawing or or a um you know a, a copy of this every day is the first five thousand days from Beeple. It's on my screen here. I could pull it up on Google and I'll be able to see it. I'll be able to save it on my desktop, make it a, a background if I wanted to. But technically, somebody owns that at the hefty price of what was it, seventy million dollars. They own that. So if I were to try to um, sell this to somebody for their album cover or sell this image um, or print it out and use it for marketing purposes and for, for something that I'm doing, these people could sue me for, you know, copyright infringement or, you know, hey, I own this thing. You can't be using it without you haven't licensed it. Uh, you know how the NBA or the NFL is like you can't reproduce some of their footage and stuff like that unless without express written permission. And so they technically own this thing for $70 million. Now, you tell me what the value of that is intrinsically. Yeah, you own it, okay? Or you own this highlight of Dwayne Wade passing the ball to LeBron James um, for, you know, to slam dunk a finish there. You actually own that that clip for you paid whatever. Let's say you paid a hundred thousand dollars for it. People can still go on YouTube and see it. People can probably still go on Sports Center and then they they're creating uh, content and that's a clip that plays there. But not because you specifically own that. You can go to Sports Center and be like, okay, I gotta pay me to use that. But what are you gonna do about YouTube and all these other places? So it's a it's a it's the wild wild west right now. But people are diving in head first. They're creating NFTs out of anything. Anything, again, that has a digital footprint, you can make into an NFT. Now, of course, a person like me, I can just go ahead and, and make this, uh, for example, the intro of the show or the segment that I'm talking right now. I can make this whole episode an NFT. And, <laughs> but who me, somebody's got to, you have to have a buyer, right? Who's going to pay for it to, uh, to um to curate this episode and and to and to give it it was worth whatever they pay for so somebody wants to pay me a hundred thousand for this episode and so that they could have exclusive rights to it fine you could do that but that's not you can't really create a market off of one person right you're going to need somebody else who wants that from them so that they can be able to sell it later if not if not selling it, at least holding on to it and knowing that there's an audience that's building up of, of desirables out there that may want to purchase something in the future. So something like um, Wu-Tang had this album. I believe they only printed one. They only printed one copy of this album and some rich dude bought it. But because it was one copy of that album and because it's Wu-Tang, of course, there's a ton of, of interest out there of people who would want that one album. And so now this person owns it. And so it ends up increasing in value because the rarity of it and because the, the uh, novelty of it only being one album, one physical print of this album. And there is a marketplace out there that's willing to pay for it, right? So really, NFTs at this point, 
only matter and can only be really created by people who are influencers or who have or who are celebrities or who have the the cachet of an audience that's already primed and ready to pay whatever it is to have a piece of that that person that they love to consume whether if it's a music piece or or um or a content creator like on on instagram or 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 tiktok or somebody you could make a tiktok in nft and so you think somebody has um you know a million followers there's probably a great chance that any nft that they they would create they could they could also manufacture a groundswell of interest for people that would end up wanting to either bid on it or buy any nft that they create so how you know this is pretty similar to how art already works in the art world we have some artists you know a guy joe schmo lives in my neighborhood man this guy can draw he's really good does a little piece whatever he hangs it up in his living room and it looks great and nobody would ever buy that thing nobody buys it nobody you know people barely see it but it's visually stunning and it looks better than a ton of other stuff you might have run into in museums and stuff but guess what this person doesn't have the name recognition yet or something or they don't have um formal training or whatever it is but yet you go and look at a um a van gogh and because of the name that's that's associated with that and because of the fact that this guy's dead um and there's no more works going to be created in the future with this name on there the whole nostalgia of the art world, all of that stuff. It's it's sort of manufactured, but there's at least a foundation on which it's built on for right now, right? But just like that art, the you know, the, the physical art spaces and the, and, and the things in the art world, there's very little intrinsic value for it, for a thing. So for young people that are jumping into the game or for people that may have, a, you know, five grand here, ten thousand dollars savings i you know I, I would say be very careful if you want to jump into the nft world and purchase an nft maybe if you are you really like a piece if you really like um you know for example this beeple one or if you like um a, a joke that a comedian t told and you're and he's willing to sell that that joke and that clip and you have all rights and ownership to that clip and you own that for five grand and if it's ever going to be used in a Pepsi commercial or movie or to be referenced or anything like that, they would have to pay for it. You're, it's a very big risk to think that you're going to buy this NFT and it's going to increase in value. I would say if you're going to do it, make sure it's something that you just like and it's for yourself. You have five grand that you can afford to lose. Potentially, these things can have zero value. I mean, it's only as much as somebody is willing to pay for it, right? So you pay five grand for it. If it's going to increase in value, that means somebody out there in a year, six months from now, is willing to pay you more money than you paid for it when you bought it to own it. To own it for what purposes? Just to have it at home and be like, I own that thing. Or you're going to license it out, whatever ideas you may come up with for that thing. But right now, this thing is the Wild Wild West and you got to be ready to lose all that money. I read a story the other day about um, someone who uh, who purchased an NFT and they could never visually see the NFT. They purchased it. They owned this line of code and the line of code um, referenced an image that they own. But that image has to be hosted somewhere on some website. It, NFT itself doesn't have a website. It's not a website. 
you use um, Ethereum, this is one of those digital coins, to buy this thing. And yet they give you the code. So you have a nice pretty code you can go look at at any time. You can type it out. And if you want to sell somebody that code, you could do that. But they could never actually, it, it took forever before they were able to physically see the piece that they bought. Because the original place it was hosted, once they sold it, they weren't obligated to host it on their website. They didn't say, oh, by the way, we'll also be a hosting platform for this NFT. So you can always come here to visually see the visual product of what this code represents. The website was like some third party or fourth party even in this whole case that was hosting that image. Image is gone, but they still own the actual code. Now, how do you find it? It's it's working through the blockchain. Hundreds of thousands of computers involved in this blockchain. And I, like, I'm, this is this is there's a lot of um, nuanced stuff here that I can't go into right now. Even I don't fully understand some of these parts. But the the, the way that is is confusing as my explanation sounds. This is how it's far more confusing in the actual transaction of this thing. So you actually go now, have to hunt down where you can get a visual representation representation of this NFT code that you just bought. By the way, NFT stands for non-fungible token. Here's another thing that's um, problematic about NFT. All right. So if you have a dollar, right, if you have a dollar, um, if you let me borrow a dollar and a couple days go by, a week go by, and I can now, and you you say, okay, Darwin, you owe me this dollar. I want my money back. So I can give you this dollar. I give you that dollar back, right? Or I can give you a dollar. Four quarters, um, you know, I give you 10 dimes. Either way, you get your dollar back. You get, it, you know, $1 worth of money back. With a non-fungible token, though, what they mean by non-fungible is that you gave me a dollar, with specific serial code uh, uh, printed on there, when it's time for me to pay you back, you want your specific dollar back. That paper dollar with that specific serial code back. So whereas something fungible, which is I can give you any amount that equals a dollar back, a not, something that's non-fungible is that specific thing. So that's why these NFTs, you know, when I say you write a specific code to, an, uh, to a, a work of art, or digital um, something in the digital medium, it, you can't you can't just give me a copy that you download off of Google of this image that looks similar to the one that I bought. The specific one that I bought has a specific line of coding to it. It's, a, it's serialized, and that's the one that I specifically own. So that's how they make it to where you're unique. You are the unique owner of this thing, even though there's other renditions that may exist somewhere. You are the unique owner of the actual original one. And you can pay for that. So, like I said, it gets way more complicated than this. But essentially, NFTs right now, are they're unregulated. There is um, um, a lot of people jumping in, not fully understanding what it is they're buying, what it is they're investing in. But I would look at it as not necessarily an investment, um, but just something that, that if something that you like, just be ready, you, you'll pay for it. And, um, don't, don't go into it thinking you're, you're buying something or you're, you're investing in something that's going to grow in value. It can, it can, there's a chance it can, it's a very high risk that it will, but 
be prepared to lose all of the money you put into it. But if you like the thing, then you buy it, just buy it because you like the thing. And oh, maybe a byproduct of it is that it increases the value later on. So that's my little spiel on NFTs. Uh, as you know, it's it's been going, it's been getting headlines left and right for the past several weeks uh, and a couple of months. Um, probably we'll make another appearance in a future episode. Uh, but let's move on to our artist of the day. Um, slightly, we're going to do a slightly different this time because we're actually going to read an article about this artist before we go into their life and times. Um, and so this is, uh, we're talking about Franklin Bolin and in um, art news, they have the headline here, artist Franklin, uh, Frank Bolin accuses former gallery, former gallery of withholding 18.5 million in paintings. This is written by Alex Greenberger. Uh, so they start, he starts off, uh, an illegal claim filed in London's high court early this month. Artist Frank Bolin, whose work has been seen uh, on a new level of interest, has seen a new level of interest thanks to recent exhibitions at the Old der Kunst in Munich and Tate Britain in London. Alleges he alleges that the Halls Gallery owes him a significant sum of money. He also accuses the gallery in which he no longer, uh, which no longer represent him, of withholding more than a hundred of his paintings. In response. Uh, Hales has accused members of Bolin's immediate family of having ruined his relationship with the gallery in an attempt uh, to co-opt his legacy. They go on to say here, the Hales Gallery, uh, which has spaces in London and New York, first began showing Bolin's work in 2011. According to the claim, which was filed in London in August 18, Bolin terminated his relationship with the gallery in 2019 because of serious breaches of the gallery's agreement with him. What's he, what he's claiming is, um, it, it goes on to allege that more than 100 works of his are being withheld and that he's owed 1.8 million uh, in fund, uh, that's 1.8 million euros, so it's 2.4 American, in funds related to sales of his work. His lawyer uh, claims in the filing that the paintings being held by Hales are worth at least um, 18 million. While the claim states that Bolin believes them to be in Hale's gallery storage in New York, in London and New York, it does not specify which works are allegedly being kept away from him. Regrettably, Hale's gallery has sought and continues to try to resist Mr. Bolin's claim in its entirety, the suit alleges. A representative for Hale's gallery did not respond to Art News um, when they requested comment. Bolin, who was born in 1937 in British Guyana and is based in London, New York, is known for semi-abstract paintings that allude to histories of colonialism during the 1960s and 70s. He made his most well-known series known as Map Paintings, which feature forms resembling continents transposed onto color fields. In 71, Bolin wrote a now-famous essay for Art News called It's Not Enough to Say Black is Beautiful, which focuses the double standards facing black artists of the era. For over five decades, his distinct paintings practice has been defined by an integration of autobiography and post-colonial geopolitics into abstraction. Over the past few years, few late career artists have enjoyed as steep a rise as Frank Bolin, whose abstractions pay homage to Western modernism, histories of colonialism, and diasporas, and elements of his own biography. 
As mentioned before, he was born in Guyana, West Indies, in 1934. He moved to London at age of 19. That was in the 50s. Um, by the way, Guyana is a former British colony with many of its people originally from West Africa before they were brought to the West Indies. Going on. In, in London, his, pa his passion and desire to study art was born. He graduated from the Royal, Co Royal College of Art in 62 and has since been traveling back and forth between London and New York where he maintains studios. Early on, he graduated from RCA alongside the likes of David Hockney and Derek Bashir with a silver medal for painting in 1962. By the early 60s, he was recognized as an original force in London's art scene with a style combining figurative, symbolic, and abstract elements. When Bowling left the Royal College of Art, RCA, in 62, he was hailed as the leading talent in an exceptional year, one that included R.B. Kittaj and, of course, David Hockney. At their graduation, Bolin won the silver medal to Hockney's gold and was thought by some to have actually deserved the higher accolade there was some, there was some, um, some scandal about him dating one of the administrators or something like that, um, that was older than he was, and they frowned upon that girl. Clearly, that's an administrator. So, um, so they knocked him down a peg, and he got the silver. Uh, so several exhibitions followed, but he was soon eclipsed by his former classmates. Uh, the move to New York was born partly out of frustration at being pigeonholed as a quote-unquote Caribbean artist. So Bolin is widely considered to be one of the most distinguished artists to emerge from post-war British art schools. He began as a figurative painter, incorporating personal and political imagery before moving to New York in, in 66, where he made a decisive turn towards abstraction. Bolin has made upfront, he has been upfront about the fact that he considers himself a formalist, and his work has made use of a variety of unusual techniques to alter the look of canvases. For some of his most iconic works, he used turpentine to eat away at the paint, uh, creating ghostly planes of, of color that they appear only half present. Uh, this was very um, apparent in those contested works um, that... that that he's uh, that the lawsuit is about those the map series, you could faintly see you know Africa in the background of the colorscape. Other works have involved pouring large quantities of paint down printed canvases, and still other works involve the inclusion of urban uh, detritus and foam. Detritus is that how you say that? Uh, and foam. Well, lending the paint a sculptural quality, so kind of giving us some 3D feel there. When Bolin relocated to New York in 1966, his style shifted dramatically. He fell in with a group of cutting-edge artists that include Larry Rivers, Jasper Johns, and others. He began painting in a non-figurative mode. Many consider his breakthrough to be the map series, the map paintings, a series beginning um, in 66 that feature images of continents, that this is what I was talking about earlier, that are just barely visible. The outlines of these forms were made uh, possible via an epidioscope, a stencil-like tool that Rivers had given to Bowling. In 71, Bowling met Clement Greenberg, who not only became a regular visitor to the artist's studio, but also an important influence to Bowling. Greenberg's advice and encouragement helped remove 
any lingering doubts Bolin might have about his commitment to modernism. The narrative present in Bolin's earlier work was replaced by an increasing focus on material, process, and color. By this time, Bolin had had developed a very personal palette for his large, light-filled, lyrical color abstractions that distinguished his work from that of earlier color-field painters working in the U.S. However, never content to stop exploring and experimenting with paint, Bolin continued to innovate with new processes. He subsequently developed a special mechanical apparatus which tilted the canvas so he could pour paint onto it, creating the spontaneous fusion of layers and color that that now uh, are known um, as the iconic poured paintings. In today's ekphrastic poem, we're going to take a look at a piece created around this era for Frank Bolin, giving birth astride a grave. It's a bright creation with dark undertones. The poem um, is actually the poem is actually a compilation that explores the individual person as a free and responsible agent, determining their own development through acts of free will. Some of you may recognize that as existentialism. So before we get started, let me remind you how this works. This is going to be a description of a visual art piece. As I'm speaking, I want you to, to visit the ekphrastic page on my website, darwindarka.com. Check out the show notes for the link. All the details are there. On the site, you will find a catalog of all the artwork we discussed to accompany today's reading. I want you to pull up the image of giving birth astride a grave. I'll give you a second to search for it in your browser. Have you not done tormenting me yet with your accursed time? It's abominable. When? When? Oh, when? I'll tell you when. The first time. The first time they saw it in their child, they said no. Don't you dare. You will not grow up thinking you are unwanted because they chose themselves over you. This will not be the truth. The truth is, your creation is not about them, not about me. You came through us, my love. We were your vessel. The truth is, you were born for you. You were wanted by you. You came for you. Your existence is yours, yes. You will want them, but what you do not get from them does not make you less, does not make you unwanted. All you did not receive, all you need will come to you. In time, the universe is infinite. Infinity? The glut of it all, the absurdity. One day, is that not enough for you? One day, he went dumb. One day, I went blind. One day, we'll go deaf. One day, we were born. One day we shall die, the same day, the same second. Is that not enough for you? They give birth a strata grave. The light gleams an instant. Then it's night once more. Special thanks to author Naira Wahid for the bulk of today's reading. 
check out Wahid's book, Nejma, for the collection of works. The namesake of today's featured painting, They Give Birth a Strated Grave, actually comes from Samuel Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot. Other parts of this poem came directly from the play. Bolin was elected in 2005 as a member of England's Royal Academy of Art at Burlington House in Piccadilly, London. He was among the dozen artists proposed to fill one of two vacancies in, 80, in the 80-member uh, academy and is the first black uh, British artist elected a Royal Academy in the over 200-year existence of the institution. Despite his increasing frailty, he's got diabetes, back pain, the guy's old. Bolin still paints every day. Naturally, he is pleased by the uh, recent resurgence of interest. Had several exhibitions over the past few years, while the Royal Academy has just published a monograph uh, of his work. It feels, he says, just like the first five I spent in New York. The working and writing and toing and froing from London. I've never felt this interest in my work quite as intensely. His paintings have been exhibited widely and internationally. In 2019, Frank Bolin's major retrospective was held at Tate Britain in London. 2017, Okui Inwazar curated a comprehensive survey of Bolin's large-scale paintings at Eau der Contes in Munich, which has since toured to Irish Museum of Modern Art and Sharjah Art Foundation in the UAE. Selected solo shows include exhibitions in Dallas Museum of, uh, of Art, uh, that's in Texas, uh, the Spirit Museum, Stockholm, um, of the Royal Academy of Arts, of course, that's in the UK, Whitney Museum of Art in New York. Bolin's paintings continue to be shown in exhibitions around Europe and the United, um, United Kingdom and the United States and are included in major private and corporate collections worldwide. And, by the way, Bolin was knighted. So, again, don't forget the sir. Thanks for joining me on this journey of getting to know um, our artist better, Sir Franklin Bolin. It's, it's been great going through this journey with you. Uh, but that's it for today, folks. Uh, we painted yet another pretty picture with our words. I'm glad you took the time to join. Uh, for this and other artwork we discussed, please visit darwindarker.com backslash It's where you can find all this stuff catalog for your viewing pleasure. If you like the show or if you want to leave some creative feedback, please rate us five stars, hopefully, and leave a comment. That's always helpful. Another great way to support the show is to share it on your socials, Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp, whatever. We'll take it. I'm Darwin Mesadu. Thanks again for listening to The Acrastic.